Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and today we'll be talking about innovation and the C-suite, why it's important for C-level executives looking to drive innovation to take a good hard look in the mirror, the importance of continual training for yourself and your employees, and much more. Here with us to discuss innovation and leadership is Bob Eckert. Bob is CEO at New and Improved, where he focuses on helping companies harness and develop the innovative brain power of their people to deliver new and improved results. He's been involved in the business of helping people reach their highest potential in one way or another for the last 30 years. Fast Company calls him an innovation thought leader, and he's the author of numerous articles and books, including the recently published executive report, Demystifying Innovation Culture Efforts, 12 Strategies for Organizational Change Practitioners and Executive Leadership. Companies that have benefited from his organizational and leadership development work include General Electric, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, Mercedes-Benz, and Pfizer, just to name a few. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Glad to be here, Will. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Our pleasure. So, Bob, let's let's kick things off today with the executive report that you had improved recently published that I alluded to during the intro. Uh, what are some of the misperceptions surrounding innovation that you want to dispel with the report? Well, there's been a gap in the way that people have been writing and speaking about innovation, and it's an understandable gap because it's a difficult uh, piece to talk about. So many folks, when they talk about innovation, are uh, being a little bit either too tactical, so they're thinking about innovation only as a product or an artifact or a service. So how do you get another product? How do you get another service? Or they're being too theoretical, and they're, they're way out at the level of, well, you know, you, you're going to have to have these kinds of structures if you want innovation and these kinds of strategies if you want innovations, but not specific about how do you put that together at an enterprise level. So we tried to step into that space, uh, driven somewhat out of the frustration over the last 20 years of really trying to drive uh, you know, forward on cultures of innovation. So it's, it's moving into that area, uh, so to kind of demystify it. And quite frankly, <laughs> you know, these days, so many people are speaking the words innovation. They're putting it on their corporate value systems. Most communications departments for large corporations, when they, they write the uh, communications or the speeches for senior leaders, you know, they're putting the word innovation in there. The street expects to hear it. And uh, then they have a hard time delivering on it in any kind of sustained way. You know, they can point to a product or a service but not necessarily to a sustained culture that might last uh, through multiple leaders. And that's really what uh, boards of directors and investors want to see happening more, and quite frankly also employees, because then they know their company will do well and their job will be stable. They want to see a culture of innovation built so that across every aspect of the enterprise there's steady growth. Okay, so we're, we're focusing on uh, leadership today. There's an interesting stat in the white paper that I want to mention. Uh, Goran Ekval performed some research on innovation, and his research found that between 40% and 80% of the statistical variance for a climate of creativity in a company is accounted for by looking at the behavior of the leader of that organization. So really, one person can dictate whether or not an organization is innovative. Is that right? Well... You can't dictate if the organization is going to be innovative, so it will not work to say you stand at the top 
you know, you get all of your people together, you send out a communication, say, we will be innovative, you know, <laughs> good <Right>. luck. Sure. <laughs> it's not going to work that way. But as, as a CEO, as a senior leader, anybody really think about it in this way, anybody that has direct reports. So the multiple of pyramids, organizational hierarchical pyramids, that make up an organizational structure. So what we've looked at, you know, the research and others, and Ekbal's research is really nice that way, he points to it, was when you, when you look at a business unit that is innovative and you look at other business units that are not innovative and you try to figure out, you know, well, what's the variability here? Why would one be innovative and another not, all of the things being held constant? What you find is the behavior of the leader of that particular organization is the largest single um, variability. And so there are ways to be, as leaders, kind of comportment um, ways to interact with others, how you treat ideas, how you lead the expectations that you have that are going to make a huge difference in terms of the climate for creativity uh, and the level of innovation that comes out of that business unit, what, no matter what that business unit is. So, you know, I was working with a group of auditors one time, large pharmaceutical company, and, you know, you think about auditors as driving innovation in a company. That's not necessarily the way we would typically think about audit. But there was a senior leader within that audit group who was really the kind of leader everybody likes to work for. You know, she just drove a culture that was creative, doing new things, and then they brought to that pharmaceutical company a, a new type of auditing, a type of auditing where, you know, it's like, you, you know, any manufacturing site, for instance, that they would go audit, you know, you show up and say, hi, we're from audit, we're here to help. And the manufacturing, you know, site, you know, leader would think, you know, yeah, sure, you're here to help. You're just <laughs> going to be a pain. But what ends up happening is this audit group figured out ways to cross-fertilize best practices around the organization in a way that had never been done before. And a lot of that existed because of the way this person led that unit and the way that she behaved. Innovation can come from anywhere, but it's not going to come from the kind of place where a senior leader's emotional intelligence and, and innovation leadership skills are low. Fortunately, that's a trainable skill. Okay, and what are some of the ways you might train that? Well, one of the things has to do with how do you treat ideas. There's a lot, you know, and we've got the time that we've got. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, like if I was going to take one quick thing that I would do if I was coaching an executive leader after watching them in a meeting or something like that, a lot of it has to do with how they treat ideas. So when an idea is put on the table, uh, whether you're just having a meeting, whether you're standing in the elevator having a quick chat, whether it's a hallway talk, or it's a formal proposal that gets brought to you in some type of governance session, the typical or habitual human pattern is to look for what you don't like about a thing first. Look for the danger. Mm -hmm. And we actually have more neural tissue given over to sensing danger than we do to looking for cool. And so there's an interesting inversion that you can, by force of will, cause yourself to do, where you're going to still be rigorous and look for the weaknesses and try to strengthen those weaknesses or look for things that the proposer has not thought of as weaknesses and help them see that. But you're going to do that only after you've looked for what you like about the proposal. You look for what you like about the idea. And you develop as a leader the skill set whereby you habituate in yourself this pattern of looking for the pluses first, as we say, praise first, 
but then look for the issues. And then there's this other subtle thing that instead of complaining, which is the normal way we look at issues, we'd say, well, there will never, we'll never get funding for that from senior leadership. That's a complaint. Instead, you say, I'm, wa- I'm wondering what might be all the ways we could get senior leadership to help fund this. And, and the, that change in language drives an entirely different, different cognitive response in the, uh, in the individual saying it, the individual hearing it. So for leaders, you know, if I was going to say there was one thing, and there's not, but mm-hmm. if I was going to go for the, the one thing that I always uh, work with leaders around, it's that how are you treating ideas? It's a big piece of it. So openness to new ideas is key. Yeah, openness to new ideas, but then it's how you treat it. You know, it's one mm-hmm. thing to say I'm open. Sure. But it's another thing that I've got to praise first. Look for what I like. So there's a great tool. We call it POINT as an acronym. It's pluses, opportunities, which are secondary positive benefits, issues. Now, you do it in this order. Pluses first, then opportunities, then issues, phrased in the form of a question, and then new thinking. You help provide that new thinking to overcome any issues that you've, you've determined uh, together right at that particular moment in time. And so you'll see in some of our client companies, they're actually, you know, that's statutory. That's the way that you uh, evaluate all proposals. Other companies are beginning to look at that in terms of employee evaluation as a structure for the conversation between a manager and their employee. Here at New and Improved, as a matter of fact, um, all of our uh, uh, you know, corporate staff, each year, everybody gets a 360 from everybody in the group. And uh, it's always organized around point. You know, what's working well in the way that you're working with the company? What are some secondary benefits of the way you're working in the company? What are some issues? You know, let's think together about how to strengthen that. You know, I, I get that feedback from my people as much as I give that feedback to my people. Yeah. Okay, I want to, I want to touch on uh, some of the client work that you've done because there's an interesting anecdote about, uh, about Bosch in the executive report. What did you find was holding innovation back at Bosch? Well, it would be maybe an overreach to say that there was something holding innovation back at Bosch. You mm-hmm. know, I want to be careful not to highlight and say that, you know, they had any particular problem that somebody doesn't. Right. Um, but the, they made a, a smart move that, that really pretty much everybody should be making. Um, and we've seen this at other client companies, too. Now, we're talking not Bosch in general. We're talking Bosch, uh, the Asia-Pacific area. So, and you'll see this happen oftentimes, too. A particular business unit leader or geographic leader um, sometimes we'll get on, uh, you know, the on board with what's necessary to drive a culture of innovation. And, you know, the smaller your business unit, the easier it is to turn it, right? The smaller mm-hmm. the ship, the easier to turn. So um, in this case, what they decided to do is to, to provide the, the kind of right skills training around innovative thinking, creative thinking, creative collaboration, and structural things that need to be done around innovation through the entire hierarchy. So a lot of companies, what they'll do is they'll say, well, we're going to train individual contributors. Like, let's train all of our engineers in creative thinking techniques or creative problem solving or design thinking or, um, you know, some, you know, creative method. And uh, you'll find that very quickly what will occur, and thousands of times I've heard this from individual contributors as well as my people around the world, you'll be doing a training. Let's say we're doing our innovation for results training. And, you know, it's just two, two and a half days, and people are really getting it. They're seeing how they can use it at work. They're seeing how they can use this at home and in their community. Heck, they're seeing how it can be useful in their marriage. And then they come up to you, and they say, 
So uh, are the managers getting this training? <laughs> and, and here's what that means. <laughs> I can already see that I can use this stuff, but I'm afraid that my boss is not going to be on board with this way of working. And I can see that they'll misbehave and they'll undermine my efforts to bring more innovation to the company. Are you going to be training the bosses? And, and so what Bosch did in that particular case, they, they knew that that would be a problem. A Nordion, which is Canada's radio pharmaceutical um, manufacturing company um, that was, used to be government-owned and it was privatized, CEO there made the decision every human being in the company was going to be trained in creative problem solving. Um, spent two days, you know, over, gosh, it was a multi-year project to get everybody done. But that was the deal. And he and his executive team went through that training, too. They said, oh, the executive team, two days? How do they find the time for that? Well, you know what? How do the shareholders or the board not allow them or not force them to find the time for that? Because it's that important. Okay, got it. So, so training at all levels of the company on innovation is something that's really pretty important if you're gonna if you're going to bite it off. You know, you have to do that. There's a lot of other things that have to be done, too, and, um, but, but training is a big piece, and it's got to be ongoing, and you come at it in lots of different ways. And, you know, humans, you know, we, you know, over my life, so, you know, I'm, I'm mid-50s, and, you know, I've gone to lots of training and gotten good value out of it and gotten some good habits, but habits tend to, some of them, you know, kind of deteriorate over time, so I need a re-inoculation. Mm-hmm. if you will. And so there's got to be this kind of steady thing. It's not a one and done. So, uh, for instance, there's a guy at Kimberly Clark, really well trained um, around innovation. And uh, recently he and I were at a meeting and, and he was leaving to go somewhere else. And I said, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to a training on biomimicry because I want to understand how biomimicry might be able to be used um, to improve my skills as an innovation leader in our organization. Okay, so he's on a steady basis, and his company supporting him to do that. That's the kind of um, way that you need to approach training. It's an ongoing kind of thing. Okay. So let's say that I'm a leader who feels like he's doing a pretty good job of you know, establishing an innovative culture. We're launching new products or services to the market relatively regularly, and they seem to be, they seem to be performing well. So you know, numbers and metrics will give you some idea uh, of how successful your innovation efforts are. On a kind of more cultural level within the company, what are some ways that you might be able to tell if your innovation efforts are succeeding? Well, there's, there, there are numbers of ways that you need to measure it. And these 12 strategic action areas that we talk about in the uh, executive briefing kind of describe them. And, and they're so interrelated that um, actually when we put it together, we would argue with each other about are there 12, are there 10, that kind of thing, and, because some of them overlap, right? Mm-hmm. And just trying to make sense out of this in a way that you can write about it was an interesting exercise in its own right. But the, the thing that you really want to be paying attention to, there's a, there are some direct measures and there are indirect measures. And truthfully, I've started to learn to feel more comfortable using the indirect measures as a longer-term strategic measurement. So we'll talk about indirect. Well, we'll talk about direct first because that's easy. Sure. So you're going to want to understand you know, what's in your pipeline, what kind of um, percentage of your revenue is coming from new introductions, what percentage of your revenue is coming from, you know, improvements and introductions that have been in market for some period of time, and what percentage of your revenue is just coming from your kind of commoditized product that you haven't changed for years and don't really need to change for years because it's still relevant in the marketplace and you're making your money now by kind of doing it more efficiently. 
So as you understand those kinds of things, then, then you can ask yourself, look, if we're, if we're not really making any new money based upon new stuff, then we better look at our pipeline. And that's another measurement. You have to understand what's going on in your pipeline, how long your pipeline is from concept to market, and then you want to be looking at what kind of things are moving through the pipeline so you can say, well, we're thinking that a year from now we're going to have this introduction. Our best guesses on performance means that it's going to bring this kind of revenue in for us. You're going to have to have those kinds of things. But there are indirect measures, too, and, and this is where I really like the work of Teresa Amabile, um, who's now at Harvard. But through her whole professional career, she's been really looking at um, productivity and creativity and creative collaboration. Um, her recent book, The Progress Principle, just I really enjoy in, in a lot, talking about everybody's worried about engagement now. How do you keep people engaged? Well, help them make progress. And why did she get there? Well, originally she, she looked a lot at creative climate. And she helped develop, um, uh, and I think Jonathan Vihar in another one of your podcasts talked about this with Stan Griskevich, might have talked about it, that the two of them developed a, um, an instrument called the Keys Assessment that takes a look at uh, kind of these determiners of a culture of innovation that on a regular basis you can measure, and they're great indicators of where you're strong, you can parse it down to the business unit level, and it gives you some sense of, of what's going on um, you know, are there sufficient resources? Are there places where there aren't enough resources and your people are really clamoring for it? Is there time to think? Are people working at 120% capacity and there's no way to know, uh, you know, what might be going on in their mind creatively because they're just so busy putting out fires? So there's great measurements that way, too, that are useful to help understand that. And, and we speak to that pretty extensively in, in, the, in the executive um, summary or executive briefing, rather. Okay, great. So, Bob, you've worked with a number of different leaders at a number of different companies. We mentioned some in the intro, and I'm sure there are many more that we didn't mention. What are some of the common traits that you see of the most successful innovation leaders? When you look at the individuals who seem to, you know, create a culture of innovation around themselves, we talked a little earlier about some of the, you know, these dynamics, the leader, you know, 40 to 80 percent thing that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Really, the one that shows up the most for me is their curiosity. Are they personally uh, filling their mind with new information? Are they behaving in a way that, that they're curious? Uh, are they reading new things? If you think about how creativity happens, creativity, you know, which is you and I sharing ideas back and forth with each other, maybe building a prototype together, that kind of thing, that comes initially from the connecting of some previously unconnected thoughts. And it'll be in your or my mind. You know, so you and I are talking about a thing, and something I'd say connects with something that's already in your mind, and you have one of those little aha moments, or vice versa. So if, if you're not curious in our conversation, if you're just telling me stuff that you know all the time, well, great, you know, that'll be good for my creativity, but it's not going to be very good for yours. Uh-huh. And, and so... What you'll see in the leaders that seem to create a culture of creativity and innovation around themselves is this curiosity. And so then you back off on that. And, so, and we've done a lot of research about that. What is it that causes one leader to be more curious than another? A lot of factors, but the single greatest factor has to do with the personal humility of that particular leader. And so even in some of our training methodology, we go through a kind of a, a pedagogy or andragogy, as you're supposed to say, for adults, where what you do is create or energize 
some of that humility, out of which then can come curiosity. Think about it at the enterprise level. The, the time when a company really is ready to try something new is after they have been humiliated in the market <laughs> and humbled, and so then they're willing to try new things. Well, the more I can, as a leader, keep myself um, from being arrogant, if I can watch out for my arrogance, if I can invite feedback for my arrogance anytime it starts to show up, which is the same as energizing my humility, now my curiosity is enhanced. And so out of that, I make these novel connections. Um, at the individual level, you then you still need to be courageous enough to share these kind of heretical notions and crazy ideas that come to your mind. And because they're new, you have to be tenacious with them and stick with them uh, for a period of time. And if you want to lead at an enterprise level, you want to create this culture where there's good humility, curiosity, courage, tenacity. And then if you can align people with their passions so that they're doing what they, they want to do and then hold each other to integrity around remaining humble and curious, uh, courageous and tenacious. So I, I like to say that I've, I've surrounded myself here at New and Improved with uh, tenacity, you know, with integrinators, sorry, with integrinators, my made-up word. <laughs> and these are my colleagues that will uh, quite readily uh, <laughs> get in my face when I'm being a little bit arrogant or not curious enough or I'm wimping out or I'm not sticking with something long enough. And uh, that allows me, because I need that help, uh, I think most leaders do, because, uh, you know, the hierarchy wants to set us up as uh, being know-it-alls, and uh, people defer to us in a hierarchy, unfortunately, just part of the human brain, the way we do that. And so it's a huge piece of it. So that's, you know, for, for me in terms of it, Will, that pattern of humility, curiosity is just extremely important. Of course, you meet some leader says, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I got that humility thing covered. <laughs> you know, you just found something that needs some help. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you, uh, if you're the leader of an organization, chances are you've probably, been, you've probably been very successful throughout your life in business. And you've probably been led to believe that you personally are responsible for much of the success that your companies have had. So how do you remain humble when that's the case? Yeah, you know, and... You know, a lot of it has to do with the mental story that you tell yourself, and that's why this innovation stuff is just so advanced. You know, you, the cognitive aspects of all of it and the mental story aspects of it all. So, you know, I think to be a successful leader, you, you pretty much these days have to have a very strong fundamental belief that the marketplace is constantly, rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. And if you know that, if you you know you you know that it's changing, that you're going to have to be able to adapt to that change, which means you're going to have to be able to sense that change, and you're going to have to have creative ideas to um, come up with strategies to work with that change. So the, the arrogant leader is one that's kind of been riding a business growth curve for a while and has seduced him or herself into thinking that all we need to do is keep doing the same thing and, and we'll be fine. And, you know, quite frankly, this is a problem with business these days, and this is why a lot of boards of directors are beginning to ask for a different kind of behavior from leaders, because I, as the CEO of a large organization, could successfully, for my own career, ride that kind of steady growth curve for the period of time I'm there, and then when it starts to deteriorate, hey, you know, I've got a great package, I've had a good four or five-year run with this company or 10-year run, and move on. So. 
you know, other authors have talked about, you know, level five leadership and kind of do you leave a great legacy of a strong company behind you? You won't. And if you've talked yourself into believing that all you've got to do is the same thing you've always done, you've got to do something different all the time. And, and it's that, that curiosity, that humility, and the mental story that says, look, we live in a rapidly evolving commercial uh, arena that will, will create that. But when I sit, you know, I go to trainings with the National Association of Corporate Directors and sit in training meetings, and I'm listening to other you know, directors from corporate boards are beginning to understand that, you know, look, we've got we've to challenge our senior leaders that you know, report to us as the board to, to have the kind of, um, I don't know, executive comportment, the kind of belief systems that they build an enterprise that lasts well beyond them. Uh, and, and I'm seeing more and more of that language appearing these days. Okay, so if I'm a, if I'm a business leader, the first thing I'm going to do is remind myself to be humble every day. The second thing I'm going to do is download your executive report. <laughs> and once I've read that, I want to look to implement a solution that's going to help drive innovation and capture ideas in my company. So you talked in the executive report about uh, an electronics manufacturing firm that at one point in time had five separate efforts underway to create their own IT-enabled idea capture system. Uh, you also mentioned that there are plenty of tools out there that companies can use uh, without building their own. So understanding that the right tool is only a small part of the issue, are there recommendations for, uh, for software or for web-based programs that companies can use to source ideas rather than building their own uh, idea capture systems? Well, um, let's think about the whole idea of idea capture systems and the things that people do around that real quick. Mm -hmm. One of 12 strategies, we, as with all the 12 strategies, we kind of ask people to look at them from the point of view of are you totally ignoring that strategy or are you dangerously obsessing about it? <laughs> And what oftentimes will occur is people will see a thing like, um, you know, idea capture systems, and they'll think, there it is. That'll, that'll save the day. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. and, and those idea capture systems don't deliver on promise because the organization is not attending to the other 11 strategies or they're missing a couple of key strategies that drive it forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are common early dangerous obsessions, if you will. Sure. One is that. You know, let's get an idea capture system, and because we believe our employees have a you know kind of um, pent up uh, desire to share their new thinking, and so we, we it's a suggestion box, so to speak, and we put that that together, and it and it doesn't deliver on on its promise. And so there's a there's an entire industry that's been trying to get this right now for about oh, 10, 12 years, uh, really competitively. And it's only a piece, and so I really want to have our listeners understand that, be careful, this can be a very dangerous obsession. Mm -hmm. Don't go down this path unless you really understand the full 12 strategic action areas mm -hmm. and go down this path as part of a concerted effort with the 12 strategic action areas. But wouldn't it be great, given what we can do now with information technology, to be able to have our employees collaborate together more effectively, leveraging information technology? So for years, you know, I'd be at these conferences and there'd be vendors that sell these software packages at the conferences and I'd chat with them and of course they're always trying to get me to say, ah, it's they've got the great one and because um, I'm influential in the field. And, and they would say, I've got an idea management system and I'd say, you've got to stop calling it that because when you call it that, you're creating something from that definition of what you're creating. Start calling it a creative collaboration software system. And gradually they've all done that now. 
Um, and, you know, as the first one took that advice, the others realized that they had to go in the same place. So the, the thing to ask yourself here, if you want to go down utilizing um, that, is, is what will you do utilizing information technology to support more effective collaboration than you might have had were you not doing that? And because these companies really competitively have figured this out them, you know, well and they're in the market, do some due diligence. Maybe you build it yourself, but I generally recommend people don't anymore because the stuff's out there pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, so, but do some due diligence and poke around at the vendors that are out there. Um, Google, you know, Google creative collaboration software platform. <laughs> don't Google idea management. Because if it just says if you get the return on idea management, but you don't get the return on creative collaboration, you're looking at the wrong product. <laughs> so. Okay, fair enough. Good, good answer, and we won't hold you to naming anything. Yeah, yeah we yeah. wouldn't want to make you complicit in anybody's uh, dangerous obsession with uh, with <laughs> with <young> software. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, good deal. So, Bob, when we were uh, when we were talking about uh, setting this up, you mentioned that you all were recording an audio version of the demystifying innovation culture efforts executive report. Any uh, any idea when that will be available to the public? Well, by the time your listeners are hearing this uh, podcast, it will be available. We're actually in production on it right now, so um, uh, we've got some post production work to do. Actually, this afternoon and uh, it'll be out and available. So people will be able to access that uh, by way of our website or, um, you know, probably we'll have a link to it right up on the front page of our website along with, I'm sure you'll have links in your stuff as well. So absolutely, uh, that'll be available as well as the paper itself is downloadable um, as a PDF. Okay, great. Uh, we will certainly include links to the website and to the uh, end of the audio version. Uh, once it's live, any uh, any parting words of wisdom, Bob, for uh, for for uh, leaders out there who may be looking to drive innovation in their organizations? You know, I'll, I'll just go big picture just in closing. Then, so what's in it for us if we do that? Well, I don't think anybody would argue that you know, driving and building a greater, stronger culture of innovation will be good for your position in the market. There's another benefit that comes out of all of this. You cannot build an enterprise-level sustained innovation architecture without impacting, essentially, the creative problem-solving skills of the people that are part of your organization. And what's really cool about this in the organizations that get this right is that those creative problem-solving skills that their employees now have in service of the mission of the enterprise go home with them. So they go home to their parenting. They go home to their marriages. They go home to their... Uh, community involvement, volunteerism, with those same creative problem-solving skills that the enterprise helped them to learn and habituate. And they make a positive difference in their families because of that. We get emails about a 50-50 thing in terms of the emails we get. Half of them come to us from people we trained in large enterprises that use this stuff at home and say it's making a great difference, and the other half about, hey, we made or saved the company X millions of dollars using this. So. So to me, you know, what gets me up every day is, is less the made and saved the company X millions of dollars and more the made a difference in my home, family, and community. And I think it's a great win-win for both the enterprise and the employees in it to really go after this. So what's in it for the leaders that attend to these 12 strategies? They're building that both for their people and for their enterprise. Okay, good deal. So not just building better companies, but building better lives for uh, for your employees. That's all that's at stake, huh? You 
you got that exactly right. That's the big picture. <laughs> okay, good deal. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, some fantastic tips for all the leaders out there. Really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll look forward to the audio version of the, uh, of the executive report out here soon. Great. Thanks for taking this time, Will. I think people will find it useful. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again to Bob Eckert for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll have Mike Maddock of Maddock Douglas on the show to talk about business model innovation. We'll discuss real-life examples of companies who have successfully shifted their business models, questions to ask yourself to find out if it's time to change your business model, and what steps you need to take if you decide that's what your company needs. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.